that took purpose, that put purpose into something so traumatic that it made me realize, you know, for me, that belief is that I went through all those things to put me in the position because that's what I was supposed to do with it. Yes. That's what I was supposed to do with it. And it was super effective. Welcome back, everyone, to the Redemption Road podcast. I'm your host, Doc John, here on Redemption Road. We are interviewing high-performing individuals to hear about their life hacks and see how they overcame the worst of adversity to live a happy and healthy and thriving life. So today's guest, we have a gentleman who is a former police officer. He's had various roles in other organizations. Uh, He's been a law enforcement consultant to mental health and social services, mental health first aid, QPR suicide prevention instructor, investigator in the employment suitability industry. Um, Now, this this gentleman is working with first responders to help them with the transition to civilian life and uh, has also written a book. He's the author of the small book on big leadership, I'm talking about Robert Greenaway the third. Bob, welcome. Thank you for being here. Outstanding. Thank you, Doc. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to uh, see what we can talk about today. Oh, I think we'll have no trouble finding a lot of great things to talk about. And you know, having spoken with you before, and we definitely speak the same language. And uh, we're out to help people. We're out to change lives and uh, save a few of them in the process too. So. Uh, let's, uh, let's let her rip here. Um, so I guess just leading off, I mean, since the, the theme of this podcast is redemption, you know, everybody that I have on here is someone who performs at a high level, but everybody's overcome something pretty major in their lives and something they've had to come back from personal issues, uh, you know, personal demons, whatever it may be. Um, I'm going to put you on the hot seat a little bit. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the difficulties that you've overcome to start. Well, I I think getting into police work for me was probably, um, you know, it was a dream for me, but it was also one of those things that coming from a background, uh, I grew up in a really small mining community in central Pennsylvania, where a lot of folks just didn't leave, you know, that really wasn't the plan. And with with that being said, you know, I had a, a dream, I had a vision, I wanted to be a police officer. But once that was realized, one of the big first steps for me was to overcome imposter syndrome. You know, it was one of those things that to realize you belong there. I mean, once I, uh, you know, I got used to that, it was like a lot of folks that go into those jobs. You didn't know what you were getting into. Um, And when I say that, some of the some of the uh, things that I needed to overcome during that period of time was just adjusting to, you know, how violent that job is number one 100%. and be, you know, becoming somebody that that's a fine line, you know, you know, I've talked about that where the idea of seeing and dealing with a lot of things that come with that job, you have to normalize it without it being normal. Right. You know what I mean? If that, if that makes sense to some degree, you have to compartmentalize things just so you can continue to function. You do because if, you know, if your mind was convinced that those, 
you know, those situations where the continuous area of operation, you probably wouldn't go back. Sure. You know, that that's not a logical human thing to do. Uh, you know, so that adjustment in itself was was the first big adjustment. And that happened pretty early on, you know, and then it, it continues throughout that that job. But what I realized, probably the biggest thing, and it's the message I really want to send, and it's what it's led me to to where I'm at in my life at this point is I I did a good job, at least I thought I did, of compartmentalizing those things uh, while I was working. But when you leave the job, um, you know, you think you're going to get to walk away from those things and you'll leave them behind, but they're part of your psyche. Sure. And one of the coping mechanisms that I realized I had and this is post-policing that I realized I could no longer employ when I was no longer policing was you could just use this, this thought process of the fact that you, you were involved in something that was horrific, however it landed on you. I would pick somebody that I thought in that scenario um, that was worse off than me. Right. Mm -hmm. So at least I wasn't the victim or, right. you know, uh, I get to go, home tonight and those other guys are working a double shift like whatever thread i could grab to to use as a thing to get me through that because number one i didn't really want to think about it sure number two i knew that by the frequency of these types of incidents in the place that i worked if i use that coping mechanism long enough well something else horrific would show up as ridiculous as that sounds it would show up and it would push that other memory to the back of your head and then you'd be dealing with this thing that was in front of you you know and then i would just use that over and over again but it ended up having a stacking effect sure that yeah, def definitely doesn't sound like a long-term solution it is it, it is not and it's not like you can't go in like you do when you're handed in a computer and empty out the the inbox right Delete the hard drive. <laughs> yeah, there, you can't delete that hard drive. No. So when you leave, those things that you've told yourself stayed there, they come up in really uh, inconvenient times, right? Uh, like for me in particular, there was one incident, and I think you and I talked about this, that really, really st stuck with me. There were several, but this was the one that I had, it was that really got me in a position where I realized it was something I had to have a real solution for to proceed through life. And there was a, uh, a domestic dispute. And at, at this time I was a new Sergeant on midnight shift and um, we'd come right out of roll call. I mean, we're 15 minutes out of roll call and we get a call for a female and a, uh, a child at a local uh, pizza place right near right around the corner from the police department and they were both uh bleeding profusely oh, the, wow. the caller didn't know where the wounds were coming from but, but they were bleeding we showed up and realized it was a mother and a um i want to say probably about a 12 year old child and they had uh been attacked by the father her husband oh my gosh and and with a knife and in in that attack, the the child had to their left arm had received a a slice wound clear to the bone through the wow. bicep. And we really thought that he, you know, that child was probably going to lose their arm. 
thank God one of the responding officers had some uh, towels, clean towels in the trunk of his vehicle. And a lot of people would carry them for the, this purpose to be able to sure. apply direct pressure, that type of thing. Because it, where I worked, um, we quite frequently beat the ambulance to those types of calls. Sure. It just, you know, um, you're already in your car, you go, you know, it's not the same as a medical response. So you're the, so, you're the first line of medical care on top of all the other duties that you have. Absolutely. And that, you know, and that, especially if it's something where it's an unstable situation where, you know, the medics are going to fade, you know, they're going to stage outside of that till we tell them, Hey, it's safe to come in anyway. You know, and this was definitely one of those cases because we, you know, initial call, you have very little information. You don't know necessarily who did it and where they are, who perpetrated the crime. Well, once we established that, uh, medical care came in and stayed with the officer that applied that towel as a tourniquet to this child's arm. And they, you know, had applied medical care to the, the mother who was uh, almost completely scalped. Um, oh, so that was obviously something that as a, you know, as your normal life growing up, you don't think about normal, you know, when I use the term normal loosely, but our everyday functions, that's not usually something we witness. Right. And it doesn't matter in what capacity. And um, we were able to go on and resolve that, uh, take the the father into custody. You know, we'd followed the blood trail up the sidewalk. They had walked uh, south a couple blocks to this pizza joint just because, uh, you know, at that point it wasn't safe for them to try to use the phone in the house. And they fled. And they, I, you know, I assume the mother knew that there, you know, that that place was open because it was open, you know, virtually 24 hours a day. So fast forward to that, you know, he, he was arrested. We go through the whole cart process, which was a whole other situation where the way it works with that is police officers in this case testified first. Mm -hmm. So that meant then we were in the courtroom for when the victims testified. Okay. And that was to hear that, that added that extra level of shock to the system to have them describe what it was like to be attacked. I got to see what the aftermath was, but then I heard how that felt and the mechanism of that. And that was what, what went through your mind at that time when you're hearing all, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, all, that explicit description in the courtroom. I mean, what's, what, what, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? I, I can't even imagine what that must've been like for you to, hear that account of what happened it i you know i vividly remember being really initially angry um really really angry that just any human could perpetrate that against another human that at, at least at some point they professed to love right or at least they're in a, some type of relationship with these people so I was really angry. Of course, I, I, you know, then that became sadness. And, um, you know, within all this, I, I, you know, I skipped over because it wasn't relevant at the time. But that, uh, you know, the the perpetrator, the father, the husband had stabbed himself post the assault and had locked himself in the residence. And we had a force entry in there. And then we dealt with his wounds, too, because they were very substantial and had we not been there at the time we did, he probably would have died from them. Um, 
you know, so that that's a conflicting thing. We did our job, but what we were supposed to do. Right. And I feel certain we probably saved his life too. Uh, so then to hear afterwards, after you got done saving life of somebody that did that, then to hear what they experienced, you know, um, the duality of the fact that, yes, this is a human and you saved their life, but then you feel like, boy, what a monster, you know, what a monster. You feel and, that anger at the same time for yeah horrific actions and yeah. Uh, you know, so that I was able to push that back really successfully. And that, that was in 2000. Right. And um, that was in, I, I, I can't remember exact month, but it was in the year 2000. And I remember that just because of the dynamics of where I was assigned at that time um, in the police department. Well, we are moving forward into sometime in 2019. Um, so we're going, you know, 19 years later, I'm watching the movie Hostels with my wife at home, right? Have you seen that movie, Christian Bale? It's a movie uh, set that he's a cavalry officer and they're assigned to take an Indian chief back to his home so he can die and be buried on it. I have Indian not man. seen it, but it's got Christian Bale. I can, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, the opening scene or shortly therein, they're on this mission that they've been assigned to and they come across a wilderness homestead for, you know, settlers that had been attacked by Indians. And he goes inside the home and inside the home are two children that are dead that had been scalped. Oh, and this set off an anxiety. It was an anxiety attack like I'd never had before in my life. And I didn't understand why at the time, um, you know, and I was crying. I was, I couldn't, I couldn't catch my breath. And my wife, thankfully, really reacted well. And I got through that. But that was the thing in my mind that I realized, you know what? Um, you need to, to move forward with this and find a way to to finally cope with these things and not just hope they go away on their own because they right. don't right you know um and that's you know moving forward that's what led me to get to where i'm at now is you know the focus of helping first responders and police transition from that life into what i call civilian life gotcha you know? yeah. so talk talk to us more about how you were able to overcome those difficulties, how you were able to make that transition yourself. Because like, like you said, I mean, just because you, you know, you go home for the night or even when you retire, um, you know, there's still things that you've seen that you can't unsee. There's still memories that can't be erased. Um, there's, there's still so much that you carry with you that's had a profound effect on you. I mean, with PTSD, I mean, biological things happen to our brains when we've seen traumatic experiences, um, and so it's not like we can just forget about it or there's no one thing that you can say or do that's going to make this all go away and be better. Um, talk to me about what worked for you. What, what really worked for me and I, it really started before I left policing. And at the time this happened, or once I, I went down this road, I didn't realize that it, it, it had such a, a therapeutic effect, but I had got involved in really the last four years of my policing career, I became a certified um, suicide prevention 
instructor and mental health first aid instructor. Incredible. And being like the education of what it takes to do that was very self-informing and it made me reflect a lot of upon a lot of things. Plus I learned techniques, right. That I was sharing with other people. I was instructing other people with it. I was helping other people with. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was, that took purpose that put purpose into something so traumatic that it made me realize, you know, for me, that belief is that I went through all those things to put me in the position because that's what I was supposed to do with it. Yes. That's what I was supposed to do with it. And it was super effective. Um, to the point that where, you had to go to through to get to the light and or valleys yeah. that you had to go through to, you know, reach that peak. I it, It's, you know, I was in my darkness and I had to find a light and I found a light basically that I didn't realize that in that process, it's like I became a light that I was shining on other people too, right? And that go. to me was very cleansing. And, and, you know, it's all part and parcel. Like the, 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 the thing about transitioning from any job where there is, you know, occupational trauma, it's like built into the fact that you're, it's just going to be part of what you deal with. Sure. Um, you know, when, when you go, when you go through those things and it's all, it's relative to the person, when you go through those things, you can talk yourself into the fact it's all okay. Uh, but to a person, anybody that I've talked to in regards to this, there's always at least one or two things that there are trauma memories attached to. And it's part of the transition of sorting out why that went on you no longer in that position where you need to do those things or see those things, but now you're somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's not like you should forget those because everything happens to us for for a reason, but you need to put them into an operational perspective that makes you be able to move forward in a mentally healthy way. Sure. You know, so that is, that's a big part of it. Of course there's, you know, just operational realities to helping people understand what specific skills they possess and how it can apply to, again, I'll call them civilian jobs, you gotcha. know, um, you yeah. know, so that, that, you know, that you can't separate the two or you're not having an honest conversation right? when you're talking about that transition. Well, I love, uh, you know, the, how the, the thing that, uh, you know, having trauma or, or things that, you know, these unfortunate circumstances that, you know, that, that you went through and that you witnessed and things that a lot of people would think would maybe disqualify them from helping anybody else are the thing that actually qualify you the most. And- for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and a much less dramatic example of that. And I use this when I talk to people because uh, successful first responders are all generally really good communicators and they spend a lot of time selling people on things that they might not want to do. They, they might want to jump off a bridge. Well, they sell them on the fact that it's not a great time to do that. Let's Mm -hmm. at least talk some more. They sell them on the idea of putting down a gun, you know, uh, they, even from a selfish standpoint, they sell maybe a supervisor on an idea that 
I should be the guy driving the new car, you know, they've been the new squad <laughs> car. Like, so having them understand that you have all these life skills that were born of experience that not a lot of people get to have, you can certainly transfer them to things where you can continue to help people and find purpose in a different way. And to me, that's the key, the purpose piece, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the idea that we all have, we all have to feel like we're useful. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you work in a, you know, in a Ford factory making car parts or assembling, you have to feel that that's a useful thing. Right. Or you're not going to want to go there. Right. So if you're left with all I, all my usefulness or in my days gone by as a cop, a medic in the military, whatever, um, you're going to have an uphill battle that uh, you may not overcome. Be sure, you know, so for me, that's a big piece of it is helping people go on that self discovery of hey, this is your purpose. Look, look right. at this, like, you know, this is the now let's figure out where you aim that, right? You know, let's figure out where you aim that. The um, hardest and- things we go through are the things that give us that purpose, and so the, the biggest responsibilities, the biggest challenges. I mean, you know, whether it's a difficult career, whether it's raising children or whatever the, you know, the most difficult responsibilities are. I mean, they're, they're very hard and they're the biggest stressors that people have, but in the end, I mean, it's those responsibilities that keep us from being lost souls that, that give us that purpose that, you know, at the end, when, you know, that keep us from having that existential crisis, crisis at the end of our lives that say, you know, gosh, what imprint did I leave on this world? Now I, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, to, you know, and it's the theme of your, your podcast, like, if you didn't have a tribulation, there couldn't be a redemption. And right. how would you know? And how would you even know when there was something to be grateful for if you if everything was flatline? It's right. just you you wouldn't you wouldn't right. know that you know. Um, and to me, that's a a key piece back to the idea of how you overcome dealing with things is you know is the first thing I do literally when I wake up is I list at least five things that I'm grateful for oh, same here. single day, right? Every yes. single day. And I have every and, one of my coaching clients do that, you know, five, yeah. sometimes 10, even 10 things that you're grateful for every day. I'm, a, I'm and, actually up to 14, but if there's a minimum of five, but it's generally 14 things, right? And some of those are individual people, right? Uh, but probably at least a third of that are things like water, shelter, food, mm-hmm. sure. health opportunity uh things that if you you stay down inside of yourself that you will overlook and take for granted right you know um and things that a lot of people don't have and basic things like you said food water shelter the twelve hundred dollar cell phone that uh yeah if you got all those things you're probably better off than five or six billion people in the world so (laughs) now i got a leg up yeah absolutely you know and the irony of that is i discovered once i started doing that 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 was the the same mechanism I was using to cope with the stress anyway, with the trauma was I would immediately find why I was more grateful and what I should be thankful for as opposed to maybe somebody else that was involved in that incident. And I had never thought about it as, well, that's just a healthy life skill until I really dug into the idea of being grateful every day as a mantra. 
as just right. one of the things that I do to, to, to try to win every day, you know? I think having that gratitude is important. I think also, you know, if you're, if you're keeping other people in mind, you know, one of the biggest problems when we're dealing with stress or had past traumas is, is managing anger. And, you know, what, you know, Tony Robbins always talks about, you know, when anger is oftentimes me fussing about me. And so if you're getting out of yourself and if you're, you know, thinking about other people in that situation, it's a lot easier to manage your anger, you know, because when we start, when it's me fussing about me, that's when the little things set us off. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I heard um, it was within the last year. I heard uh, Sean Whalen make this statement about uh, it's a, a Buddhist statement of the fact that staying angry at someone else is like expecting them to die, but you're the one that drank the poison. Right. You, you know, and to me, like, that's very, very profound. And I think gratitude, especially if you're very intentionally aware of it every day, just really takes, unless it's a really, really extreme situation, it just really takes that emotion out of your toolbox, like, because it, it's not even a tool, you know, so I feel like it, removing anger, you know, especially over the small stuff like being cut off in traffic or a long line at the grocery store because they don't have enough help. I mean, if you're looking to be angry, that's what you'll find. If you're looking to be grateful, that's what you'll find. Exactly. You know, and, you know to me, that that's, that's a big piece. Of, and like you said, when I coach people and I talk to them, that's what I aim them at. And a lot of times it's just adjust the compass. Like, what's your true north? Is it, well, I just want to stay pissed off the world because I don't like where I'm at? Or am I trying to overcome the things that held me there? You know, so right. uh, gratitude is uh, is really a big deal. Absolutely. Talk to me about one of the things that I've always, you know, as, as a clinical psychologist and, you know, both with, with my therapy patients and also coaching clients is that... Uh, the attitude or the mindset that maybe is functional for you on the job doesn't necessarily always work well when you're dealing with your family, when you're going home to the wife and kids. Talk to me about making that transition. Yeah, you know, um, that's a big transition. It's one of the things that uh, I had a, uh, a coaching call earlier uh, a couple hours ago, and it was with somebody that is getting in to police work. And they reached out to me because they want, uh, they want to have an understanding on how they should approach that. And, you know, the testing process, that type of thing. And we talked about that very thing that they need, they need to understand that, you know, when people get that way, when they want to take the same approach as they do say with a stranger on a domestic call and they want to kind of, you know, organize how that, that family's supposed to work and what's effective. If you try to take that same approach home to your loved ones who, yeah, your dad or your husband, you're not officer Greenaway. You're not, you know, Lieutenant Greenaway. That's not who you are. You know, so it's like you need to understand that, you know, different places, different functions, you know, that, that term of wearing different hats, you're not going to be very successful taking that approach, especially if it's a very stern approach and it's what was needed at the time and then try to use that as a template at home. 
But the great irony behind that is, is there are a lot of things that your approaches you can use at home that would work like a charm on the job if you just let give a chance. And it's just effective communication, you know, taking the time to slow down and solve the problem, you gotcha. know. Um, but a lot of people don't do that. And and I I trace that back to not identifying with the vocation as your identification. It's just a piece of who you are. Right. You know, it's just a piece of who you are. It doesn't define you, um, you know, because if you let it define you, when you ultimately leave, what well, else a, piece, a piece of you is gone. Right. And what are you going to plug that in with if you don't know what that that puzzle piece is supposed to look like now. Right. You know, um, and, and, and if you over identify and, and that's, that's a theme that I keep seeing, you know, a lot, you know, keeps come up in a lot of the podcast interviews I do and you know, everything I see is people over identify with a certain thing. Maybe it's their career. Maybe they over identify as a victim. Maybe they over identify as a survivor. Yeah. But when you, when you have that over identification, then it just that colors everything in your whole persona and, and like you said, when you, you might end up in a position where, you know, the, having that over identification isn't necessarily going to serve you well, if you don't have other elements that are integrated into that identity for you. Now, and I, and to that point, I don't, I can't remember. And I was somebody that uh, when I was in policing, I loved the job, like, and I loved the part of helping people. I loved the service part of it. And I made it a point as I made, went up through the ranks, especially once I got into a command position, that the only time I cared about you addressing my rank is if you were somebody that reported to me and we were in a space where people understanding the structure was needed. But outside of that, my name's Bob, you know, and I did that for a lot of reasons. But the main reason was, is I, it was a mechanism to make sure that I kept it separated that I'm the person doing the job. The job isn't doing the person, right. You know, and that it, there's never a time when over identifying with that position in that job serves you. Well, you're wearing a uniform of people, people called the police and you showed up in a, this, we call them clown cars and you got out, they know you're a cop. Like you don't have to do anything else to identify that. So you know, taking a human approach, it's great usually just to solve the calls, but it's really good for your psyche and then transitioning back to home life mm -hmm. and eventually transitioning permanently away from the job, you know? Absolutely. Gosh. So how, um, talk to us a little bit about you, you, you had a career in law enforcement, you've gotten into coaching, um, You've written a book on leadership. Yes. And so talk to us about the inspiration there. The, the inspiration there was the fact that um, I think it's probably historically the way it's always been in this country. But there's a really strong deficit of leadership in this country, uh, you know. And so for me, I, I wrote that book based on my experiences in policing. And it's obviously what I know the best of, but it applies to anywhere, you know, and I wrote it in a way that I wanted it to apply to anywhere. 
but I felt really driven to do that because there are so many organizations and you can talk to anybody that does anything and they've been around long enough. They've probably worked somewhere where they thought, who put this guy in charge? And they don't like, they don't hold meetings. Uh, I've actually heard people that profess to be in leadership positions to say, I don't need to care about you to lead. Well, that absolutely is horse rubbish. (laughs) Like, why would you like people follow why you do what you do? They don't follow just a concept or an insignia. Right. Well, why would I follow someone I know that doesn't care? Why would I follow someone that doesn't know the name of my children? Why would I follow someone that doesn't know, you know, uh, my favorite food? If we work together in a place where we're really trying to put something out there and make a difference in this world, you ought to at least know that, like, maybe I like a cheeseburger. You know what I mean? If you don't know absolutely, you know, if you don't care. I know. Yeah. It it, it brings to mind uh, the... uh, the three questions, uh, if you've ever heard John Maxwell talk, he talks about leadership and yes. the three questions, uh, you know, that uh, a person is going to ask themselves if they're going to, if they're going to be work with you or they want to be led by you is, um, it's the first question is, do you care about me? Yeah. And, yeah. um, then the second one is, can I trust you? And I think, I believe the third one was, can you help me? Yeah. Yeah, and I and I believe strongly that you know that the the whole uh, concept and the operational thing, which I totally embrace, is for me to be able to help you, and certainly for me to be able to follow you. You have to know me, you have to like me, and you have to trust me. Like mm-hmm. you know, at a minimum, you have to know me and trust me. Mm-hmm. If if all I deal with is at work and it's eight hours. I might not have to like you, but if I know you and trust you, we can get around that. Sure. But if I don't care. You can at least respect the person. I mean, if you. Yeah. And, and if I'm the one being led, uh, like you said, I, you, I have to know you care, especially right. if you're talking about, uh, you know, inherently dangerous vocations. If I'm going to give you an order and I need you to do this now, and there's no time to question it. I have to, you know, you have to think that I have, I have at least factored in that you're not expendable, right? Right. You know, I have to at least factored in that uh, worst case scenario, I'm going to have to go tell your wife you're not coming home. And at least I know her name and I know where you live. Right. You know, so for me, you know, the, that was a big driving factor because I had worked for and with some really great leaders. I had worked with some people that just held the position by default or, you know, it was nepotism or politics. And so for me, the reason for writing the book was I wanted to give anybody at any level that was considering to get into leadership, just a simple reference of places to have an understanding of I go through the, you know, at the beginning of the book, I go through the 10 recognized, uh, you know, styles of leadership, kind of why they matter. And then the rest of the book sort of breaks down on how you conduct your day and how you treat people and, you know, how you're successful. And um, I, I felt it was really important because John Maxwell, I think, is outstanding, you mm-hmm. know, and a lot of how I operate is based on 
his teachings. Uh, Ronald Heffitz was another one, Stephen Covey. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of those. Sure. But, you know, there's really five or six people that I think just nail it. And it's not just academic theory, it's operational. So I really wanted to take something and put it in a smaller book, hence the name, mm-hmm. where people can pick that up. And if you're just thinking about, like, there's a section on how to do one-on-one meetings. If you've never done them, you can open up the book and there's a general reference on how do you do that and why you do it. You know, so for me, I wanted it. Very handy. Yeah, I just wanted it to become something that enhanced the leadership culture. And it took the idea of somebody having the moniker of leader attached to them. It took away some of the intimidation. It took away, uh, you know, maybe less in the imposter syndrome, right? You know, so, you know, for me, that's, that was the drive for, for writing that. I think that's something that, uh, I mean, courses on leadership. I mean, when you go through academia and high school and college, I mean, there's, we get taught a lot of things, but I think there's a couple of things that we don't get taught enough about. One of them is finances. For sure. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. business, but I, I think, I think leadership is another one. And I, I think to, I, I think that's something that a lot of people are learning kind of more on the fly or on their own, but it's, it's not really something that's, I mean, unless you're taking a, a special course in human factors or industrial psychology or something like that, like leader, or, you know, maybe some business courses, but a lot of times, you know, the traditional education doesn't seem like there's enough taught about leadership. And it's, it's important because we all are going to be in a position at some point or another where we have to lead, you know, whether it's leading our families, leading a business, leading somebody, leading a, a team you know, in the athletic pursuits, whatever it's, you're going to have to take a leadership role at some point. Yeah. And I, there's no way around it and we you know this this i have no idea hold this the saying is but it's true you're either leading or you're being led and it doesn't matter who you are there's you know lone lone wolf mcquade's just a movie of chuck norris in it. like it doesn't that doesn't work there's there's no such thing as that you know there are times when hey you're the one you're the one out on the you know the sharp tip of the spear but there's a whole spear behind you it, you know the idea that you can just figure this out and you don't need to lead or you don't need others uh is a complete fallacy you know um so for me it's it, it it's something that like you said it's greatly lacking in schools. Um, and I think one of the, the issues with that too is I'll use just, uh, you know, uh, high school, for example. If you're not being led at home, what you get taught at school, probably, especially over summer break when you're not at school, mm-hmm. you're probably going to get completely deprogrammed anyway. So, you know, um, when you look at leadership societies like the Spartans, or, you know, I'm currently reading a book by Stephen Pressfield called Warrior Ethos. Uh, it's a, it's outstanding, but it really speaks to this point is like it need you know, for our society, the idea of how valuable leadership is and the application of it needs to be pervasive. Um, and it needs to be something like you said, it should just be an accepted part of how we move forward. Um, you know, and people would do much better job of understanding there's a process. I think it would eliminate the idea that you get, I'll just use uh, the, you know, the example of an engineer, they come right out of college or, you know, 22 year old engineer, and they go to, we'll just say Lockheed Martin. Well, within a year, they want to be paid the same as the guy that's been there 30 years that 
runs projects. Right. Because they nobody's ever taught them on the dynamics of how that works and where wisdom and leadership, you know, they complement each other as long as it's done properly. Sure. Where There's they an, experience, that, an experience piece to that, that, uh, yeah, people have to go through at some point. Yeah. So, you know, if that was something you knew and you accepted it, you know, as much as you, you understood when the declaration of independence was signed, you know, <laughs> or, you know, any other lesson that is like a foundation of being taught in school, I think it would completely change our thought process and how we approach authority. Right. You know, so I think that, you know, you, you know, that's really understated probably as valuable as it is to, for that to be part of uh, fundamental, fundamental education. I think another important thing too, is if, if people had more knowledge about leadership, they can, you know, I, I think it's very easy for people to get the, um, you know, a diffusion of responsibility where there's all these people around and somebody else is going to take the reins. If I sit around and wait long enough, somebody else is going to take the wheel, take control over the situation. And, you know, there, there's, too, there's too much of that. It's what is it called? Social loafing. And yes. just, and I, I think if there's more training in how to take control of a situation, how to lead, then there would be less social loafing and waiting for somebody else to do it. You know, when, when there's a, a big problem, you know, <laughs> there's an emergency and, you know, somebody's injured on the ground instead of, you know, everyone's waiting for somebody else to go get help instead of one person saying, okay, I'm going to go get help or telling somebody, Hey, you go get help. You know, it's, you know, it's oftentimes people don't want to take any control of it. They don't want that responsibility. Um, they don't know. How, they don't think they know how to. And so. And now I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the other things too is, uh, is a societal thing is, you know, if we look at who, um, uh, for lack of a better term, who we idolize, right? Uh, people love to watch sports and that's okay, right? When I was growing up, I watched sports and I, I played, you know, sports throughout high school. But the what took place in the game is only validated by whether it was good or not by the final score, not the process. So they remove the idea that it's okay to make mistakes while you're learning. And I think that a lot of people fail or are afraid to get into leadership spaces because they don't want to ex be exposed making mistakes in a new place. Right. And, right. Uh, that that's it to me is a, a sign of a great leader too, is you give people space to fail because mm -hmm. that's only, only space where learning comes from. If you yep. expect that's absolutely every right. Yeah. It, it's, it's true. I actually just, uh, the research actually shows it's an empirically validated fact that, Learning only happens during times of uncertainty. Yeah. I don't the only time learning happens. Hey, I don't know if you watch the the series Yellowstone. We don't we don't I watch I love it. it. There, there's an episode in there, and uh Rip says to that that uh boy that they take on about life and oh, he Carter, says, yes. Yes, and he says about there's only two two roads to head down in this life. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but the point, and I know you probably already got where I'm going is there's winning and learning and losing. That's the only two things in life is you're either winning or learning or you're losing. And that to me really ties in because I look at losing isn't mean you failed. I, I look at losing when you quit trying and you, failed you quit to learn <laughs> when you, you decided that, 
the the juice isn't worth the squeeze and i'm just going to say stay here and um and for lack of a better term suck because right. i'm not putting any effort in and make the same know. mistake over and over and over again you know so uh, i'm not a big fan of the word try either you're doing it or you aren't right it doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly you're just in the process of doing it but people are going to quit putting in effort if you don't give them any space to fail right and move forward yeah. you know and i think that that is a everybody's a rock star you you look at tv and everybody's winning you look on social media and everybody's winning and it doesn't matter who they are everybody wins we never unless you're looking hard you never see the struggle oh, you know and, you're getting everybody's highlight reel and that's you, that's one yeah. of the causes of the depression and the anxiety that everybody has in the world today is you know you're you're seeing everybody and you know yeah they're posting all the wins they're posting the great pictures and the great places you know with the famous people or the fancy cars and you know a lot of it's a facade and <laughs> i was at a chris daughtry concert one time and he said uh he's like yeah you see anybody on, on social media and you think they've got, got great lives and he's like don't worry their lives suck too <laughs> <laughs> and yeah you know, maybe the lives don't necessarily suck, but they have elements of other lives that suck. I mean, everybody's got ups and downs and nobody's life is perfect. And, uh, but we get caught up in that comparison bias of, you know, thinking that everybody's life is great and, oh gosh, well, my, I must be a loser. My life is boring, but, uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. No. And I think that that circles back to what we talked about earlier about gratitude. Um, you know, if you're, you're busy, being gratitude, you know, grateful and, um, and you're concerned about how you can give back and return that to whoever made you feel grateful. There isn't a lot of time to, to be concerned with, you know, what the Kardashians are doing or, you know, uh, any one of the people that seem to just do nothing but win. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you're more intentional about what goes on in your own life, time for that seems to disappear and more importantly concern for it seems to disappear um but again i think that's losers so focus on winners winners focus on winning exactly uh, you know and you it's that like to me it's that 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 saying too that you know if there are four jerks sitting in a bar and you show up and sit down with them then you're the fifth one <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like you're the fifth jerk at the bar. So it's like wherever you put yourself is what you're going to be. Sure. Yeah. What, we're, what, we're a product you know. of, the, of the four or five people that we spend the most time with. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so for me, that is, uh, um, it all ties back to that. And it all, it's all on leadership. I mean, it just is, uh, you know, if there's not somebody showing you away and being patient with you while you climb out. Well, you, you, you probably won't be in that situation if you already knew the answers yourself, you know? Right. So it's, you know, um, I call it the flat circle. You stay there with everybody that just wants to, to talk about how unfortunate they are while well, you're just going to stay in that same plane and spin around until you just run out of days. Right. And then your mm -hmm. last day is going to be full of regret. Yep. Yeah. You know? People, people who are depressed, they're too caught up in the past. They talk about how unfortunate they are, and they're just they're, you, you can always tell because they're the people that are always talking about the good old days, and that's it. 
And yeah. the people that aren't going anywhere, they're they're still stuck in the past. They're the Uncle Ricos of the world talking about when yeah. they were the state back <laughs> Uncle in the Rico. 1970s. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, that, that's the example that always comes to mind is because, you know, you got a guy who's caught in a time 20, 30 years ago, you know, it was his glory days. And, you know, these people haven't done anything since. And so, you know, the people that are successful, they're the, you know, you have a conversation with them, they're, they're not sucking the energy out of you talking about how great life was and how much it sucks. Now they're talking about what they're working on now and, you know, what they're going to do, what they're building, what, you know, what they built and what they're going to continue to build. And they're, they're focused on the here and now they're not too caught up in the future without worrying. Cause that that's anxiety. If you're too preoccupied with the future, but you know, they've got a direction and there's things in the works. Now I, I agree. And I would tell you some of the people that, um, over the, especially the last few years that I've drawn the most inspiration from are people that have taken the biggest risks, right? Uh, you know, um, they're just, you know, uh, sensible risks, but they left places where that, you know, that's saying that, you know, um, good's a trap, like somewhere where it was good, where it was comfortable, well, that, you know, generally is only circumstantially dependent for a while, unless you continue to adjust to what's going to continue to make it that way. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like that shift to a thought process and taking a risk on just becoming better as a human and being able to offer more to the world, as opposed to say I'm good because I have two shore houses, a ranch and mansion and 18 cars. Well, okay what are you going to do next? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's great that you have those things, but what's that do for me other than to look at you and see that you have, you can drive, you know, a different car every two days a month like that. And I, you know, that's great if that's what people want. And there are people that I, I, you know, I'm sure they're happy like that, but generally they seem to be the ones temporarily, temporarily, or they seem to be the ones that they have those things. But overwhelmingly, what they do is they give back to other people, too. You know, so every time you hear or see something, 80 percent of it's giving or helping other people. Maybe 20 percent of it is, hey, look at my new car. You know, so and and, and that because that's the real thing that gives you purpose. I mean, the I mean, the monetary things are are nice and, and it's great to have them. And I encourage people to, you know, if that's, you know, to pursue those things, if it's one of the things that motivates you. But. You know, your, your wealth, I mean, studies in positive psychology have shown that, you know, your the level of wealth that you have really doesn't have any effect on your overall happiness, except in cases of extreme poverty. I mean, the, the studies have shown it and it's great to have the big house and the fancy cars and everything else. But um, those those are going to be temporary fixes. I mean, people always talk about that it thing. If I can just get that Lambo, that'll be it. If I can get that big house on the lake, that'll be it. But they get that it and then they're just they're surprised when they get that whatever that it thing is and they still feel empty. There's still something missing. And it's because they don't have that purpose. They're not helping. They don't, you know, there's not, they don't have that, like I was talking about before, that existential thing that, you know, in, that uh, they feel like they're impacting the world. It's like, I've got it. Now what's next? Yeah. And, and for me, I, I can't, I can't remember a time for myself you know, certainly as an adult where I didn't feel just this internal need to make a difference. Like I can never remember just wanting to go be average and 
not have any responsibility. Right. Like I can't remember that. Sure. And I think that uh, for folks that are mentally healthy, I think that that that's a thing, you know, for sure that that's a, that's a driving factor. Right. You know, um, I heard, I heard, uh, I've heard multiple people say, but basically I've heard people that are millionaires say that are self-made that like, you have to become the person first and the money's okay, but it's more important to be the person that made the money and that you have those skills because you can continue to give, you can continue to get better and you can show other people how to do that. Right. To me is why people who win the lottery that aren't set up to understand how to do that, lose it within five years. Sure. So many of the, what's it, over 80% of the people who play in the NFL are broke within five years after their career is over for that same reason. They didn't build the person. They built the bank account, but they didn't build the person mm-hmm. because their compass was off. They yep. were focused in the wrong direction. Yeah. You know? it's Yeah. Who you have to become to make that the millions. And it's just, uh, yeah. yeah, there's, there's no preparation and, yeah. And, and get, getting back to our other point as well. I mean, you, know, you see people have all these things and they say that they're, or maybe are, are not making any changes or not improving themselves. They're not trying to give more and they say they're happy. And my response to that is, no, you're not happy. You're content. Yes. But you're not happy. And there's a big fucking difference between being content well, and being happy. There, there sure is, you know, um, cause I've been both, you know, usually well, I, to me, content is a big trap. Like it's just well, a, it very a much is yeah. because you think you're actually, you think you're staying the course and you're maintaining, but you know, the, the, the phrase, and I, I put this out there on Facebook and most people agreed with me. Some, some disagreed, but you know um, you know, one statement I heard um, from a very well-known podcast uh, and you said, basically, if you're not getting better, you're actually getting worse because the world's revolving around you. If it's changing, everybody else is getting better. So if you're not doing your part to, you know, I mean, if you compare the standing, if you're standing still and everything else around you is moving, you're losing your standing in line. You're losing your standing in the race. You're, you're lagging. So yeah, you're actually getting worse. Now I, I agree 100%, you know, and even if you're just the basic logic of the fact that the world turns, yep. <laughs> you know, the world turns and days go by and time is ticking off. Well, you know, it, if you don't have in your mind what you're going to get done or what you want to achieve in a certain period of time, well, like you said, then you moved backwards. You know, you absolutely moved backwards. Gotcha. Well, we got a couple minutes left here. Uh, talk to us about what you're working on now and uh, your, your goals going forward. Uh, tell us uh, what can we expect to uh, see from you in the upcoming months and year yeah. Um, well, real shortly here, I just have some uh, on the technical end of it. I'm working with somebody that I had developed a digital course, uh, 12 lessons or 15 minutes a piece on the the transition from uh, first responder to civilian the course is going to be called uh, Getting There From Here. That's going to be really shortly. That'll be uh, available. Uh, it's just a matter of he has some final edits to do on it. And then, you know, uh, put together a campaign, advertising campaign to get it out on social media and other venues. And about maybe uh, not even a third of the way through my second book, 
um, and it's on uh, post-traumatic stress. And I'm going to title that book, You're Not Broken. Uh, that's Incredible. something that I'm going to, at some point, I want to interview you because I want your your uh, uh, input in some of that. So uh, that will be, that will be, I, I, I have like a, a six month window on that just because I have a set of interviews I want to conduct to ha- have people contribute to that. Okay. Um, so, you know, and then I just want to continue to build uh, my coaching and uh, that's should keep me occupied. Uh, that's all my vision for the next year to get all three of those things situated and up and running. And, um, then we'll go from there. I'm excited for you, my brother. It's, Thank you. It's a I great really thing. I, I love what you're doing. It's such a great cause. I mean, to uh, you know, helping helping so many first responders that are making the sacrifice, and sometimes some of them make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, you know, yes. for us, and um, I believe you said you're going to be working with some military members as well. I am. I've had some uh, conversations with some, and uh, that's you know, I'm looking forward to that as part of it, I mean, there's a lot of similarities in the, the, a lot of the thought process is, uh, is the same. And mm-hmm. as far as making that transition, um, you know, I'm open to talking to anybody that wants to improve, but that's my, you know, the first responders, police and the military, are my focus. Yeah. I, I love that. we got to take care of the people that are taking care of us and give us the ability to do what we're doing today. And, uh, so grateful for your service and thank you. you know, both that as a service as first responder in your days as a, as a on the police force and uh, what you're doing for them and uh, other first responders and uh, our uh, retired military men now. So very grateful for people like you and uh, uh, no better cause. Uh, thank you. How can everybody find you? Well, they can find me. They can go to my um, Instagram and it's at uh, set the paths and. I have a uh, link tree, which I can provide to you if you'd like to put in uh, your description when you, you put this out. And that's uh, the two best ways to to reach me. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and uh, on Instagram under Robert Greenaway and Set the Path on Instagram. I have two in Instagram profiles and um, Facebook. I operate under Robert Greenaway. Perfect. And LinkedIn, likewise, Robert Greenaway. So um, I'm not hard there. to find. I am not hard to find, especially not in, in this day and age, for sure. Love it. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you today. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. And look, I look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely, my brother. All right, everybody. If this resonated with you, if you got some nuggets from this, if it uh, struck a chord from you, please, first and foremost, share the show with somebody. If uh, you know someone that identifies with some of the issues that we talked about today, or if you yourself can identify, please, please both share the show. Go online, leave us a five-star review. Uh, Reach out to Bob. uh, Reach out to me. Let us know how you're feeling about things. Uh, We want to hear from you. So uh, everybody go out there, go make someone else's day brighter, be good to yourselves, see you next time. Peace.